Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. So one night, not long after I began following Jesus, uh, I got a text around 11 p.m. It was from a friend that I haven't talked to in, in several months at that point. And the text just said, can you do coffee first thing tomorrow? I need to ask you a question. Anybody else hate ambiguous texts like that? Yeah. I almost texted him back and was like, I mean, we can just go get coffee right now because there's no way I'm sleeping after you sent me that text. But trying to be a team player, I just said, sure, we can grab coffee first thing tomorrow morning. So we settled on a time and place and I showed up uh, anxious to hear what his question was and just how unprepared I was to answer it. So we got our coffee, we sat down and he just came right out with it. He said, here's my question. Where is God? I was pretty thrown off by the question. I'm not going to lie. So I just started rattling off a few of the typical answers, right? God is in heaven, but also he's with us via the Holy Spirit, et cetera, et cetera. He pretty quickly cut me off and explained what he meant by the question. And as we drank coffee that morning, he eventually caught me up on his life over the past few months when I hadn't seen him. Turns out his mom had been tragically killed in sort of a a freak accident, sort of a a robbery gone wrong type situation. Um, Shortly after that, he had found out that some stuff got restructured with his grad school program. They had lost most of the funding for his particular position, and so he had been let go from that. And shortly after that, just a few days before we got together for coffee, actually, he found out that his dad had been diagnosed with stage four brain cancer. It's just a absolutely brutal sequence of events for my friend. So when he asked me that morning, where is God? The the question wasn't so much geographical as it was philosophical. He, He didn't want to know about God's location. He wanted me to explain how God could let so many horrible things happen in such rapid succession to him and his family. And I'll be honest with you, I I didn't have many good answers for him that morning. I I just started following Jesus. I really didn't have a clue what to say. And and really, I think even if I would have had the perfect answers for his question, I don't know that it would have truly helped him much in that moment. I mean, he he was grieving, right? He was angry. But I bring it up because I I think that is a question that pretty much all of us who follow Jesus have wondered about at one time or another. And I'm sure as followers of Jesus, a a lot of us have, have had people ask us that question and want us to answer it for them. And I think the passage that we're covering this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, among other things, actually speaks to that very question. And even if it doesn't speak to it in a way that that immediately resolves all of our grief or our anger, I do think it at least helps us think well about the question itself. Where is God when the worst of the worst happens? Where is God when when it seems like the train has come completely off the tracks? 
Where is God when we witness horrific kinds of evil right before our very eyes? God is with us, amen. Where is God in those types of moments? That's the question that my friend wondered about, and I would imagine it's a question that many of us wonder about too. I think that's at least one thing that Matthew wants to help us with this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter two, that passage that we just read. Matthew chapter two. If you are new with us this morning, uh, we have been working through the story of the very first Christmas as told by Matthew in the first and second chapters of his gospel. And so far, we've covered all the familiar elements of the Christmas story. So Mary becoming miraculously pregnant and Joseph taking Mary as his wife and then them traveling to Bethlehem nearby where baby Jesus was born. And then last week, we even talked a little bit about this bizarre story of the Magi. These mysterious Persian astrologers who show up where Mary and Joseph and Jesus are staying to bring gifts like gold and frankincense and myrrh to baby Jesus. And my guess is that most of us in the room, whether we grew up around church or not, are somewhat familiar with those details from the Christmas story. Because even if we've never read them before in the Bible, we've, we've probably seen them in the nativity scenes that we drive by on the side of the road this time of year, or we've witnessed them in some type of ill-conceived Christmas pageant that we were forced to attend at some point in our life, right? But one way or another, all of those details from the story are probably at least somewhat familiar to most of us. That They might even feel somewhat sentimental, right? Warm and cozy to us, especially this time of year. But today we are going to close out with a part of the Christmas story that probably isn't anywhere near as familiar to most people. And it certainly isn't warm and cozy really at all. I've found that this story tends to get left out of most Christmas pageants that we see this time of year. And somewhat understandably, too, because there's a lot of fear and violence and bloodshed in this part of the story that we're about to read. T today, the Christmas story turns horrific and dark and deadly. The, the Holy Family flees into the desert in the middle of the night after being warned in a dream that someone is coming to kill their child. Then a power-hungry king decides to massacre an entire segment of a city's population. And then to cap things off at the end, Mary and Joseph have to start their lives completely over in a podunk town called Nazareth. So by all appearances, especially for those living in this story as it happened, this is where things go horrifically wrong in the narrative. And that is saying something, really, because if you've been with us, there's been some pretty unideal experiences for Mary and, the Joseph, for Mary and Joseph already in the story. But in this part of the story, it likely feels to them like the train has come completely off the tracks, that they are witnessing the worst of the worst happen before them and to them. And I'd be willing to bet that if they're human, they are asking questions like, where is God in the midst of this? And in how Matthew tells us the story, I actually think he is attempting an answer to that very question. Because at each horrific moment in the story, Matthew is going to offer his readers a sort of insight into God's activity in everything that's happening. He, he tells the story as it happens, but he also intersperses what God is doing in and about 
all that happens. And in doing so, he gives us, I think, a bit of a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, into where God is in moments like this one. And I think if we have ears to hear it this morning, this passage shows us some pretty profound things about the nature of God and about his presence, even when things in life feel like they're out of control. But just as a fair warning before we get into the first verse of the passage, Matthew is going to make us work for it a little bit this morning. We're going to have to do a deep dive into Old Testament prophecy and how Old Testament prophecy works in in order to understand the points that Matthew is making. So I hope you brought your Bible nerd goggles with you this morning. Did you? I don't know if you own a pair of those. Somebody's got some. That's great. Uh, If not, I'll do my best to loan you mine for the morning but it's just gonna take some work to see what is being said. But I think if you're willing to do the work with me to get there, I think there's some pretty tangible payoff coming at the end. Does that make sense? You guys game for that this morning? I was really hoping for that response, so thank you. So if you've got your Bible nerd goggles handy, let's dive in and see what we can learn from this passage. We'll pick it up, Matthew chapter two, verse 13. When they had gone... They there is referring to the Magi that we talked about last week. Once the Magi left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, as in right this very second. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So that's not exactly the dream that you want to have if you're Joseph, especially given that your dreams as of late have proven to be incredibly accurate to real life. So Joseph responds accordingly, verse 14 in the passage. So he got up as in that very moment in the middle of the night, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, quote, out of Egypt, I called my son. So just for perspective here, this journey from Bethlehem to Egypt for the Holy Family would have been about 300 miles in that day and age. Traveling by foot and or animal as they were doing, this means it would have taken them about a month to make the trip all in all. So no small feat for Mary and Joseph and at this point, toddler Jesus to pull off. Not at all. I can only imagine making that trek through the desert, with the idea looming in your mind that an evil dictator wants your child dead. But here in the story is where Matthew gives us that first peek behind the curtain that we talked about. Matthew says that this part of the story, quote, fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Specifically, he references a prophecy found in Hosea 11, chapter 1. If you want to go read it on your own time, it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, upon hearing that, you might be inclined to go, okay, so that must mean that like something in that passage of Hosea predicts something like this happening to Jesus or the Messiah. And so here in Matthew, we're finding out that it accurately predicted what was going to happen. That's what you might be tempted to think. But if you flip over to Hosea 11 with that expectation of what it's going to say, you are going to be very confused at what you read. So here's where we have to have our first Bible nerd goggles moment, and we have to talk about the way that Old Testament prophecy often works. 
So it's probably helpful to know that when the New Testament talks about it fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, it doesn't always mean that the Old Testament predicts something that then happens in the New Testament. Sometimes that's what it's talking about, but not always. Sometimes it simply means that something about the story in the New Testament echoes or resembles a moment from the Old Testament. So it's not so much a prediction as it is a repetition of an idea, or as theologians like to call it, a recapitulation. And yes, I did practice saying that word a lot to impress you this morning, so I genuinely hope you're impressed. I learned how to pronounce a word. Thank you, thank you. Um, So that is what theologians tend to call this idea, recapitulation. So think with me about this example then from Matthew chapter two and the story that we're reading. Jesus and his family have to flee to and then from Egypt because of Herod, who is a power-hungry king with evil intentions towards them. In the next part of the story, we find out that he kills all of the baby boys in a particular region because he is threatened by challenges that they pose to him and his throne. So question for you that I want you to think about. Can you think of another story in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, where God's people have to flee from Egypt because a power-hungry dictator is pursuing them with evil intentions? Maybe even a story where that dictator, as a result, is willing to kill an entire population of baby boys because he thinks that they pose a threat to his throne. What other story in the Bible does that sound like? The Exodus, absolutely. The Exodus, so if you're unfamiliar with the story, no worries, early in the Bible storyline, the Israelites find themselves enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh, and at one point, Pharaoh is nervous that the Israelites are becoming too numerous, there's too many of them, so he gives instructions to kill every baby boy born to the Israelites in order to control their population. And eventually in the story, God leads his people out of Egypt, out from under the cruel reign of Pharaoh, but Pharaoh follows them, hot on their heels, pursuing them with evil intentions in mind. Or, as Hosea 11 puts it, in summary, it says, out of Egypt I called my son, Israel. So so Matthew here is pointing out the striking similarities between Jesus' story and the story of the Exodus. Now, Here's what else is interesting about this parallel. In the story of the Exodus, God saved one baby named Moses from Pharaoh's genocide of baby boys, and he did that in order for that baby to grow up and eventually return to rescue all of God's people. Does that part of the Exodus story sound familiar to you? It sounds a lot like the story we're reading right now in Matthew chapter two. Jesus is in the process of being rescued from Herod's genocide, and we're told two weeks ago that Jesus will eventually, quote, save his people from their sins. So so Matthew is pointing out to his audience, reading this story, that they've heard this story before. The nation of Israel has heard this story before. They have seen this pattern of events play out before in very similar ways. One commentator I read on the book of Matthew put it this way. I think this is a helpful way of summarizing it. Matthew sees striking parallels in the patterns of God's activities in history in ways he cannot attribute to coincidence. 
this story has direct parallels to that one. Now, this is important for us to realize. Matthew isn't doing any of this in drawing this connection, connecting these dots for us. He's not doing any of it just because he finds it interesting. This isn't just him saying, isn't it kind of neat that this story is like this one? That's not what he's doing. His intentions are far more pastoral than that. Here's what he's trying to get his audience to see by this connection. There have always been evil kings with evil intentions. In Moses' day, in Jesus' day, and even in our day. And those kings have always felt threatened by God and God's people. But just like the kings back then were ultimately unsuccessful in their efforts, so will be the ones now. Just like Moses delivered God's people, so will Jesus. God will accomplish his purposes and nothing will stand in the way of him doing that. Does that make sense? That's what Matthew is trying to get us to see in what he does here. Okay, goggles off for just a moment. We're gonna pick them right back up in a second. Let's keep moving through the passage for now. Continuing in verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, so remember last week, they were supposed to come back to him and report back with an exact location of where Jesus' family was. Instead, they are warned in a dream they go back another way. So when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by them, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all of the baby boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. So at this point in the story, Herod does the unthinkable. He gives orders for every male child under two or two and under in Bethlehem to be executed. So based on the timing, two years old was the oldest that he thought Jesus would have been at this point in the story. And Herod at least thinks that Jesus and his family are still in Bethlehem. So Herod does what he sees as the only way to ensure that the threat to his throne is eliminated. He has an entire demographic brutally murdered in the vicinity of Bethlehem. Based on population, average birth rates at the time, that likely means that somewhere between 20 and 50 male children in Bethlehem were killed. So Bethlehem wasn't a large city, but still, as you can imagine, really even in a town that size, how devastating this must have been. Likely everyone in that town knew someone who had been affected by all of this, someone who had just experienced one of the worst types of loss imaginable for a person to experience, and for absolutely no reason at all. Just heartache and devastation everywhere in the city of Bethlehem. And that devastation is what prompts Matthew to reference another Old Testament prophecy. So get your goggles back on for a moment. Look with me at verses 17 and 18. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Okay, so this prophecy is from another key moment in Israel's history called the exile. This time, God's people are suffering under yet another cruel king, this time, it's, his name is Nebuchadnezzar. He rules over a brutal nation called Babylon. 
And the part of the story that Matthew references here in his gospel is when many Israelite men and children were being carried off into Babylonian slavery for God knows how long, and it all happens, they're carried off at a place called Ramah. So the prophet Jeremiah reflects on this scene where Israelite women are are watching their sons being hauled off and they don't even know how long they'll be gone. And in doing so, Jeremiah envisions the Jewish matriarch Rachel weeping over these children being taken away. Matthew then recycles that imagery to describe the agony of the women in Bethlehem whose children are being taken away by Herod and his armies. And the imagery here is likely meant to be representative of God himself. So so God is actually weeping alongside these Israelites who have lost their children to an evil king and senseless violence. But there's even more to it if you dig in just a little bit more. What Matthew quoted was from Jeremiah 31 verse 15. I want to read you the very next verse out of that chapter. This is verse 16. We'll put it up on the screen. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears because your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They, meaning your children who are being carried off into exile, will return from the land of the enemy. In other words, exile is not a permanent destination they will see their children again, Jeremiah says. And once again, Matthew here is not just pointing out a connection. He's making a statement. He's making an assertion about something. He's saying, just like how that was devastating, but also didn't mean that evil had won, the same thing is true here. This too is a devastating situation. God weeps over what is happening here, but it also doesn't mean that the story is over. In the new kingdom Jesus has come to deliver, evil kings may indeed devastate, but they never have the final word. As the poet Malcolm Geit so profoundly put it in his poem, whilst Herod rages still from his dark tower, Christ clings to Mary, fingers tightly curled. The lambs are slaughtered by the men of power and death squads spread their curse across the world. But every Herod dies and comes alone to stand before the Lamb upon the throne. Which leads us to the third and final movement in our story. Let's look there and then we'll talk about what all of this means for us today. Pick it back up with me in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 2. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So at this point in the story, if you're Mary or Joseph, you are thinking to yourself, finally, No more life on the run. We can return to the place that we're from, where our family is, where our people are, where our familiarity is, where we know where everything is around us. Finally, this nightmare that was three years of our life has come to an end. 
Not to mention, if they're still thinking that this child of theirs is the long-awaited king of Israel, returning to Jerusalem means that he could grow up where kings grow up, in Jerusalem. That's where the king's palace is. That's where the culture-making and the culture-shaping takes place. Let's return and have him grow up there. That would be perfect. Happily ever after for Mary and Joseph, right? Only then this happens. Verse 22. But when he, that's Joseph in the story, heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So we know from history that Archelaus was in many ways just as evil and corrupt of a king as his father Herod was. So having been warned in another dream, they withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he, meaning Jesus, would be called a Nazarene. So they don't go back and settle in Jerusalem after all. They settle in another town called Nazareth. We're told elsewhere that they may have had connections there from their family, but no doubt another reason, maybe the primary reason, was because of how obscure the town of Nazareth was. If if you wanted to lay low from a murderous king who was looking for you, Nazareth was a pretty good place to stay off the radar. Bethlehem, like we mentioned, was not a big city, but geographically, it was still very close to Jerusalem where Archelaus was. Nazareth, on the other hand, was in the boonies, like absolutely in the boonies. Middle of nowhere, in fact, uh, the name Nazareth literally means stick town. Jesus is literally from the sticks, like pun intended, not by me, but by Matthew. Jesus is from the sticks. But but think with me for just a second about how odd this is from a big picture perspective in the story. This means that the most significant person in Israel's history grows up in a no-name town that no one has ever heard of. So just as a parallel in today's world, uh, if you want to make something of yourself, if you want to become a mover and a shaker in the world, you move to New York City, right? Or, or LA or DC or somewhere like that. Like that's where you go in order to make a name for yourself. You don't, on the other hand, move to Clinton, Tennessee <laughs> or, or Townsend, <laughs> like That's just not where you go, right? That's not the way that we think about the world that we live in. Important people, we think, move to important places to do important things. But Jesus and his family move to Nazareth, to Sticktown. There's actually a story in the Gospel of John where someone meets Jesus, finds out that people think he's the Messiah, and he responds with, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He just can't believe that that would possibly be the case about the Messiah. The most important person in the history of the world comes from one of the most insignificant places, which is actually what prompts Matthew to write about Jesus, quote, he would be called a Nazarene. Now, this reference to Old Testament prophecy is also even more confusing than the two earlier, believe it or not, because you actually won't find the words, he would be called a Nazarene, anywhere in the Old Testament. Like if you do a search on BibleGateway.com and you type in those words, nothing will come up except for this passage from Matthew chapter 2. So what is Matthew saying? How in the world 
would it be true that this fulfills Old Testament prophecy when the Old Testament never actually says anything like that? Okay, before I answer that question, I need to know, are you guys ready for Bible nerd level 1000? <laughs> I mean, you've come this far, you might as well, right? All right, so here's what's happening. One of the more well-known prophetic images about the Messiah was that he would be like a branch that grew up out of the roots of a tree. That's sort of the imagery that the prophets use in the book of Isaiah. The idea was that the nation of Israel at that point in the story had been pretty much leveled to the ground. There was nothing left except, metaphorically speaking, the roots of trees. Everything else was gone. But, Isaiah tells us, a branch would grow out of those roots, a sprout of hope, so to speak, after devastation, and that branch would be the Messiah. The word branch in Hebrew is the word netzer. It's the same as the word stick, and it's where the town of Nazareth gets its name. Netzareth is how you would say it in Hebrew. Matthew is saying that Jesus is indeed the branch that the prophets spoke of. And just to prove it all, he's going to grow up in a town with the same name, Nazareth. How are we doing with everything? Still with me? Did your head hurt just a little bit? You guys did great. I'm so proud of y'all. No joke, when I was writing this teaching... I was like, I I both knew that was going to be a whole lot to digest in one teaching, and at the same time, I didn't know how else to teach the passage. (laughs) Like, I felt like as as confusing and as dense as that was, it would have been even more confusing to just read, like, and he would be called a Nazarene. We're all familiar with that, right? On to the next thing. I just figured, like, it was helpful to go through some of that so that we can understand what Matthew is trying to say, because he evidently thinks that it is very important to the story and how we, even generations later, read the story of Jesus. So, with all of that unpacked, let's take a step back from the story for just a moment, and let's look at this passage as a whole. As we mentioned earlier... What Matthew is doing in this passage is really twofold, at least. First, he's just describing the events that take place for Jesus' family, right? He's describing how they came to live in Egypt for a period of time, and then ultimately how they ended up settling in a town called Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. But at the same time, in how he tells the story, he gives us all these peaks behind the curtain into Old Testament prophecy and how they get fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Matthew is helping us spot and identify God's activity amidst all of these unideal and even horrific circumstances that took place in the story. And as we've seen, even though he goes about it in a very roundabout way, Matthew has a distinct purpose in what he's doing and how he's doing it. He wants his audience to understand something about God's whereabouts in these moments when the worst of the worst happens. And to get his point across, Matthew points his audience to other times in the story of Israel where it likely looked like the worst was happening, but there was more to it than that. From God's perspective, yes, horrible things were happening, but at the same time, none of those horrible things were able to thwart God's purposes for his people. 
In fact, not even close, the story tells us. So you, you might be wondering in response to all of that, okay, then why doesn't Matthew just say it that way? Like, why didn't he just say it in a sentence like that, that nothing's able to thwart God's purposes for his people? Like, why does he take us on this crazy detour through Old Testament prophecy to make such a relatively simple, straightforward point? But I want you to think about it for a second, practically speaking. In moments in your life, when you most feel like things are going off the rails, is what you need most in those moments for somebody to just stop by, tap you on the shoulder and go, hey, just FYI, God is strong and powerful. Have a nice day. (laughs) Is that what you needed? Or is what you needed most for someone to prove to you that God is strong and powerful and capable? To me, the latter is a little more helpful. Both are good, both can be fine. The latter is a little more helpful, practically speaking. So that's what Matthew is doing in this story. He's not just telling his audience that God is strong and powerful. He's showing them that God is strong and powerful and that he has been over and over and over again in the life of Israel. So, Some people, I think, would sum up these ideas in the story with with a short phrase like, God is in control. And and I'm fine with that terminology. I think an even more biblical way of putting it, even more biblical word, is that God is sovereign. The, The point that the Bible makes is not necessarily that God causes evil or that he's in control of evil. In fact, the book of James says plainly that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone with evil. Rather, what the Bible emphasizes over and over and over again is that God is sovereign over evil. That even when human beings commit atrocious evils against one another, that none of that is able to prevent God from accomplishing his purposes and working for the good of his people. Here's the way Romans 8 verse 28 puts it. This is one of the more popular passages to kind of unpack this idea in the New Testament. It says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So do you hear the theology at work in that verse? Paul's conviction is that in all things, meaning even in the trenches of evil committed against us, even then, God is able to work for our good, for the good of his people. Evil in the world happens, and God remains completely opposed to all of it when it happens. He, he, may, he remains completely committed, in fact, to doing away with all of it for good one day in the future. And yet, in the meantime, it is possible for God to accomplish good despite and even in the midst of human evil. Now, let me pause right there for just a second and acknowledge that I, I do understand the difficulty of what I'm saying. I'm well aware of the implications of those things, and I'm well aware of how confusing and off-putting it could seem to some people in the room. I know many of you in this room. I know some of the tragic and horrific things that have happened to you and been done against you. 
And, and I know that in response to, to what I just said and what the scriptures are teaching, you might be inclined to think, really? You're, you're trying to say that God intended those types of things to happen to me and against me? And to that, I would actually say, no, I, I'm not saying that. In fact, what I'm saying is that ultimately God didn't intend for anything evil to happen to anyone at any time. His design for the world is that none of that would ever happen. Rather, what I'm saying is evil is what we as human beings introduced into the story. That was our contribution to the whole thing. And what I'm saying is that what others intend for evil, God can use for good. What I'm saying is that the God we read about in the scriptures is strong enough and powerful enough and capable enough to take absolutely any amount of evil done against you and against me, and he is able to accomplish good despite all of that. And what Matthew is saying is that if you take an honest look at the scriptures beginning to end, what you're going to see is that absolutely nothing Nothing at all is able to stop God from accomplishing those things. Nothing can stand in his way. Not evil kings, not evil people, not evil intentions. None of that is a match for the God of the Bible. Now, just to be abundantly clear, when we witness evil in the world or in our lives, we should grieve it. I hope we get that. We should grieve it. It should make us upset. We should be bothered by it, even angered by it a lot of the time. The Bible never tells us not to respond that way to evil, but it also gives us something we need in the midst of such evil. It gives us an awareness that evil will not, in fact, it cannot be the end of the story. It shows us that, that no amount of human evil can thwart God's purposes for his people. It shows us that right smack dab in the middle of evil, God is still able to bring about good. For God's people, evil kings and evil intentions do not stand a chance of victory in the shadow of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If deliverance came out of genocide, it can come from anywhere. If hope could return from Babylon, it can return from anywhere. And if good can come out of Nazareth, it can come from anywhere. So we come full circle back to the question that my friend asked me over coffee that morning. Where is God? Where, where is he when the worst of the worst happens? Where is he when it feels like the train is coming off the tracks? Where is he when we witness horrific evils right before our very eyes? Where is God in those moments? According to the scriptures, here's our answer. He's right in the middle of it all with us, working to put an end to every bit of it, accomplishing his purposes and bringing about good for those who know and love him and nothing, not the most horrendous evil, not the most unideal of circumstances, not evil kings nor evil intentions, nothing will ever be able to stop him from doing just that. And in the meantime, we have this promise from the Apostle Paul, also in Romans chapter eight. It says this, for I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the reality that has opened up for each of us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The joy of knowing that no amount of evil in the world is a match for the purposes of God. So as we go to the tables as a church family each week, as we do that this morning even, we, we remember that reality. We, we commemorate that. We celebrate that. We recognize that even when it looked like the worst had happened to Jesus, as he hung on a cross, beaten and bloodied, even then he was working for the good of those who know and love him and are called according to his purpose. As we take of the bread and the cup each and every Sunday, we remember that was for us, for those who know and love and follow Jesus. And I cannot think of a more incredible thing to celebrate together going into Christmas. Let's pray.